Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, so many things do remind us, certainly remind me of the preciousness of being your children, the preciousness of your body, the delightfulness of being part of the communion of saints. The couple of weeks away and uh, the longing to be back together again are a very real reminder of how precious your church is, how desperately we need the fellowship of the saints, the common union in which your spirit works, in which your grace, your transforming power is manifest. Your church is truly delightful. And Father, as we're reminded of the shortness of life, the fact that every day brings new challenges, that we don't know what the future will hold in terms of our day-to-day lives, in terms of of our country or uh, circumstances in the world, but we do know that your intent for your creation will be realized and that you are overseeing and directing all things towards that glorious consummation, the summing up of everything in the heavens and the earth in Jesus our Lord. And it's in his name and in the, the share that we have in his life, his new creational resurrected life, it's in that way that we gather as worshipers And I pray that we would have hearts that are filled with the same praise and awe that characterized your servant David. So minister to us in this time as we continue our worship. Father, give me the words to speak and give your people the ears to hear that we would be built up in this most holy faith. May Christ be exalted in our midst in this day. We ask in his name. And for his sake, amen. Well, just because we've been away for a couple of weeks from the Psalms, uh, let me just kind of remind us that that I've titled this series, The Songs of Sonship. And the reason is that the Psalms were the very centerpiece of Israel's liturgy of worship. The Psalms were composed as songs to be sung, Songs that uh, had at, as their very premise Israel's identity in life as covenant children. Israel as the covenant son of God. So all of the Psalms are constructed out of that framework. And, and together they speak to all the aspects, all of the dynamics of sonship. So whether we talk about Psalms of praise, Psalms of thanksgiving, Psalms of petition, uh, Psalms of imprecation all of the various 
kinds or classifications of psalms, they all speak to the dynamics of what it is to be children of a heavenly father. To stand in right relation to him, to depend on him, to be grateful to him, to seek all provision from him, to celebrate and to commemorate him and his great works. And at this point, we began where the Psalms began, um, with a couple of Psalms that emphasize the blessedness that attends devotion to God. In the first Psalm, this blessedness was associated with uh, an embrace, a fidelity, a, 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 a kind of ingesting and metabolizing, ruminating on this thing called God's Torah, his revealed truth. And the second psalm then shows us that ultimately that devotion to God's revealed truth is devotion to the Messiah himself, the one who is the incarnate embodiment of the word of God. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so we've considered this this idea in, in kind of undefined terms of the blessedness associated with this idea of sonship. And, and I come to Psalm 8 today, uh, and Denise said, why are you skipping over all these other psalms? Well, it wasn't specifically to skip over them, but to try to, again, target certain things uh, and a progress thematically. And as we've considered in general terms, undefined terms, this reality of blessedness that comes from owning God's revealed truth, ultimately manifest in Christ himself... Psalm 8 begins to flesh out that idea of blessedness. What does that really look like? What is the blessedness associated with being the children of God? And this and David in Psalm 8 does that by exposing, fleshing out for us in a sense man's created nature and purpose. That is the context in which human blessedness is found. Whatever we think about blessedness in relation to God, it's ultimately tied to what God created us to be and what it is to live authentically into that. And so it's not surprising that Psalm 8 plays an important role in the New Testament. There are at least four passages where it's more or less explicitly Uh, referenced. The first is in Matthew 21, where, and this is, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but this is in the context of the triumphal entry. Jesus riding into Jerusalem, it's Yahweh's return to Zion and the condemning of the temple, the realization that, that God's sanctuary is to be restored and renewed in him. And as he's in the temple, the children are saying, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna to the son of David. And the Pharisees and the leaders are saying, stop these children, don't let them, don't let them speak. And he says, have you not heard that God has purpose to establish strength out of the mouths of babes? An interesting statement on Jesus' part. But then we see in the other citations more an emphasis on man's regal role, man's created role to be Lord over the works of God's hands in his name and for his sake. Specifically, Jesus' exaltation as the resurrected one. 
God setting all things in subjection to him, 1 Corinthians 15, tied to the resurrection, the exaltation, the enthronement of Christ himself. And then in Ephesians 1 and in in, uh, Hebrews 2, we see the same sort of citation, all things in subjection to the Son. But specifically in Hebrews, that is the exaltation and the subjection of the created order to the Son unto that same subjection of all things to the sons in the Son. That's the point of Hebrews 2. So this idea that David fleshes out in Psalm 8 is very important ultimately to the meaning, uh, the significance of Christ himself and what his triumph means for those who embrace him in faith and are sharers in his life and his own destiny. Well, read with me then. We'll read this psalm together. Psalm 8, again a psalm of David. David says, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who has displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? What is the son of man that you actively engage with him and take care of him? You have made him a little lower than God, but you have crowned him with glory and majesty. You've made him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So in terms of a couple of general observations, in terms of the inscription, first of all, again, the psalm is is attributed to David, a psalm of David, and it's dedicated to the overseer. Probably the idea is the one who is the song leader or the leader of the musicians, the chief musician. These are songs to be sung. And then further, there's the instruction upon the giteth. We don't know exactly what that is, but that same, uh, that, that same idea is referenced in other psalms as well. Psalm 81, Psalm 84. And many believe that it's it's instruction concerning the primary instrument that's to be used in singing this song. Dedicated to the overseer upon the Gittith. Psalm 8, secondly, as as an initial observation, is itself a prayer. Many of the Psalms are not directly prayers. They may speak about God, they may speak about circumstances, they may celebrate or commemorate, but they're not specifically prayers. This is a prayer. David is specifically addressing God. Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's a prayer of praise. And it very much has to be seen through its two bookends. When you see things like this, it should stand out in your mind and say, okay, this is the framework in which we're to understand the content of the psalm. He begins and ends it the same way. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
So it's a prayer of praise, but the bookends highlight the truth that David, I believe, understood. He certainly came to understand it if he didn't at this point. That Israel was instrumental in God's creational design that has man at its center. Why do I say that? His prayer is directed to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the covenant God of Israel. O Yahweh, our Lord, Adonainu, our Adonai, our Lord, our ruler. Yahweh, our ruler, how majestic, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David understood the central, that God is the God of Israel and somehow God's relationship with Israel, his purpose for Israel, his calling of Israel was instrumental in his, in his outworking of his purposes for the world, the creation that have man at the center. It's possible, we don't know for sure, but it's possible that David's prayer was provoked I mean, by him looking up at the night sky. I can imagine him laying on the grass at night and seeing the vast expanse of the heavens. Something that's very hard for us in the city, you don't tend to see that that well. But if you get out where it's dark at night and the sky is open, it can be overwhelming to see the the splendor, the vastness, the mystery of the heavens. And it seems to have been a nighttime consideration because David only mentions the moon and the stars. He doesn't mention the sun. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, which you have appointed, set in their place. So David is noting the cosmos, the greatness, the splendor, the majesty of the cosmos. And in that consideration, his mind is drawn back to the seeming insignificance of the human creature. Compared with the splendor, the unfathomable mystery and greatness and grandeur, and we know far more than David did in terms of what goes on in the cosmos. Issues of energy and, and interactions and vastness and distance and, and matter. But David could look at all of that and then he could look and look at the human creature and say, What? What is man? What is man? In comparison with the glory of the cosmos, man is small and weak and seemingly insignificant, even irrelevant. And yet, David understood that the one who created both, the cosmos and man, The one who created both has insisted that his human creature is the most consequential thing that he has created. The most consequential, though seemingly the least consequential. That was the paradox that David is pondering here. That's the paradox that he's pondering. And the way that he mused on these things, the way that he reasoned through them, I think provides some of the most profound insight in the scripture to the question, the inevitable question that everybody answers or everybody thinks about, the meaning of human existence. This psalm alone answers that question of 
human existence and human significance, if you will, the true nature of blessedness. What is it to be blessed? So those are some initial observations in terms of some particular considerations then moving through the psalm. The first thing is, I've just titled this, this part of it, The Paradox of Man. Paradox is where there is a seeming contradiction in terms or in language or in ideas, not in reality. And the paradox of man is this very thing. That the creature that seems irrelevant, impotent, weak, frail, mortal, is the greatest of God's creations. David recognized, as all people do, that man seems to really have little or no relevance within the order and function of the cosmos. Human beings, even in the 21st century, have relatively little knowledge of the cosmos, what really goes on out there. We, we only are beginning to discover certain things, but we're like the child who can look around his nursery and think that he understands the world. We have only the slightest sense of this cosmos, this vast creation of God, and that cosmos exists and operates with no notice of us or dependence on us. Does a black hole millions of light years away care about human beings? Is it affected by human beings? No. And yet, all human beings, and David as well, recognize that humans do have a unique distinction within the creation as we know it and experience it. Whether people like it or not, whether it's politically correct or not, whether it fits their ideology or not, Human beings are the lords of the earth. We can talk about, you know, our animal companion and the tree is no different than you and, you know, the dog is just as significant as you are or whatever it happens to be. But the fact is man is lord of the earth. This is why environmentalists don't look to trees or dogs or horses to fix environmental problems, right? They look to human beings. The well-being of this world that we inhabit is utterly dependent on and determined by human beings. Not by rabbits and cows and grass and trees. Human beings are the lords of the world. And yet that lordship, that unique glory that man has is enigmatic and it's paradoxical. In many ways, people, would, people could say man is no different than the horse or the dog or the, the, the cow or the pig or the, the grass or the trees. He's a vapor, he's here, he appears, he's frail, he's mortal. What is the glory of man? Human beings are the lords of this world and yet we're ultimately subject to the creation as impotent, frail, dependent, and mortal. We may be the determiners in many ways of the well-being of the planet, and yet we're subject to the creation, right? You see this even in, in the Genesis account. It's by the sweat of your brow that you'll bring forth your living from the earth. And when it's done beating you up, 
and pressing you to your limit, then it's going to consume you in death, and then it's, the ground itself is going to consume you. The earth will have the final triumph, not you. So these are things that, are, that speak to this thing, the paradox of man. And as David considered these things, he asked that question then, what is man that you take thought of him? What is man, the son of man, that you would care for him? And I want to just point out the couple parts of parallelism. These are two parallel statements that build on each other in a kind of synthetic way. We talked about the different kinds of parallelism. So first, man and son of man, and then this idea of noticing and caring for. Man versus son of man. And people recognizing that this psalm is cited in the New Testament in relation to Jesus, they see this phrase, son of man, and they think, oh, that's Jesus. David was talking about Jesus. Well, David is not talking about Jesus. Son of man is used in, in parallel with the, the term man in many places throughout the Old Testament. They work together synergistically. David is using the expression son of man in an Israelite sense. He's not in some kind of secret, mysterious, uh, prototypical, clandestine way talking about Jesus, the son of man. Son of, as you've heard me say so many times, the expression son of speaks to essential sameness or essential likeness. So the son of something is like that. The Old Testament will use, for example, the expression son of Belial, Ben Belial, son of worthlessness, to designate what? A worthless person, right? Worthlessness doesn't have offspring. Son of worthlessness is a worthless person. Son of man emphasizes humanness, one's humanness. Son of man is an expression that emphasizes humanness. It's used where something specifically about the reality of being human is in the forefront. Yes, Jesus commonly referred to himself as the Son of Man, but in that way. He did it with a view to his messianic, his sense of, and his speaking to his messianic vocation. He referred to himself as Son of Man to underscore that his messianic mission, who he was, why he had come, what he was doing, what, what the meaning of uh, what he was doing was all about, that all of that was centered in his existence as a human being, the truly human one, a son of Adam living an authentic human life in devotion to the created father, creator father. When Jesus spoke of himself as son of Son of man, that's what he was getting at. He was son of man in the sense that he was the truly human one. Well, here David is using this expression son of man in parallel with the word man for the sake of poetic emphasis, emphasizing this idea of humanness. What is frail and mortal man? First, the, the, the term for man is enosh, not Adam, enosh. And that term, it carries the connotation of man as weak, frail, mortal. 
it, it speaks to the weakness of man. Not his created constituent parts or nature and that, but his weakness, his frailty, his mortality. What is man, Enosh, and the son of man, Ben Adam, the son of Adam? So he's asking, what is frail and mortal man that you would take notice of him? And what is a son of man, a son of Adam, that you would actively engage yourself with him? David's language is emphasizing this idea of frailty and transience, man as a mortal creature. In that way, punctuating the vast distinction between the human creature and the apparently indomitable, eternal, everlasting cosmos. Up until the 20th century, it was accepted knowledge that the universe was static and and eternal. It always was. It always would be. No beginning, no end. Einstein's work with relativity shocked the world, and they thought he was some kind of a radical idiot. But he was right. So the appearance of the heavens is eternal, static, unending, self-actuating in a certain sense, compared with man who is transient, a vapor, mortal, frail, weak. And set alongside that designation of man as Enosh, again, David uses this expression, son of man, a different term, Adam, Adam, which brings in two other important connotations. The first is by referring, using this expression as son of Adam, it points to human beings as sharing the existence and the essence, the qualities of the first man. I've said it before, Adam was named Adam because he was formed from Adamah. Adamah means the ground, the dirt of the ground, the earth. Adam was formed from the ground. Therefore, he is Adam. Adam and all of his offspring are earthy, natural, soulish. That's how Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians. When he talks about, uh, you know, talking about the resurrection and, and the Corinthians were arguing, well, how can a dead body rise? That doesn't make sense. How can someone come back from the dead? How can a deteriorated, corrupted, rotting body come back out of the grave? And Paul says that's not how it works. That's not how it works. The plant that comes from the seed is essentially related to the seed, but it's not identical to the seed. And there are all sorts of bodies, all sorts of forms. And he says that the resurrection body corresponds to the natural body, but it transcends it. It's not the the corpse coming out of the ground. It's the consummating of the person's physicality. And then he goes on to say, as we've borne the likeness of the first Adam, so we will bear the likeness in our physicality of the last Adam. The first Adam was earthy, of the earth, natural, soulish, psychikos. Doesn't mean he had a soul, it meant that he was natural, animated by soul as this inner principle of his existence. But the last Adam is spiritual, of the spirit. 
pneumatikos, man as pneumatikos, animated, empowered by the spirit. We born the likeness of the former, we'll bear the likeness of the latter. So when he refers to son of Adam, he's, he's pointing to man as Adamish, bearing that likeness of Adam, natural, earthy, soulish. And that points then to the second connotation of son of Adam, which is that human beings are derivative creatures. The Genesis account portrays the cosmos as the original ex nihilo creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then he forms life from that existing creation. He forms man from the dust of the ground. Man is derivative. Adam tells you it speaks of derivation, right? Adam is from Adama. God created Adama. Man is formed from Adama. Therefore, Adam speaks to human beings as derivative. And every person since Adam shares in Adam's likeness, Adam's essence, but as also conveyed to them through human parents. So David himself and human beings as he knew them, everyone since Adam is doubly derivative. Non-original, doubly derivative. Adam was derived from the earth. Every person since is derived from Adam, but through human parents. And that connotation, I think, is especially significant in David's contemplation because he's considering man alongside the cosmos. Genesis says the cosmos is original. That's the ex nihilo thing that God brought forth. Man is derived from it. Well, if man is derived, doesn't that make him less essential? Doesn't that make him less relevant? He's derived. He's not part of the original thing, right? That which is derived is not as important or essential as that which it's derived from. It's just a logical thing. Not only is man derived and the cosmos is not, but you have man lacking the fixity, the power, the grandeur, the glory that seems to characterize the cosmos. There's what David is contemplating. What is Enosh? That you would even take note of him. A son of Adam. A derived human, frail creature. That you would, and then the second point of parallelism is this thought of take, take thought versus care for. David says, given what man is, why would you even notice him? Isn't he just an afterthought? He's not part of the original creation. And even more, given that, why would you actively engage yourself with such a creature? That's what David is asking. The universe operates, it does its great cosmic dance with no awareness of man, no dependence on man, no impact from man. How can man possibly have any significant role in the scheme of the cosmos and God's purposes for his creation? There's David's quandary. That's the essence of what he's getting at. 
Well, David's answer to his own quandary forms the third parallelism. He expresses his question in the form of two parallel statements. His answer is the third parallelism. He says, you have made him a little lower than God, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. A contrast. He's that you made him this, but he's this. You made him this, but he's this. And the answer that David provides doesn't come out of his own mind. It comes out of his understanding of Israel's scriptures. He cites from the Genesis account, right? He answers his own question the way that God himself has answered it. He points to the structure and the order that God built into the creation that has man at the center. What is man? This is what man is. For all of his frailty, for for his mortality, for his weakness, for his impotence, his apparent insignificance, man is the crowning pinnacle of God's creation. He alone bears the divine image and likeness. Man was created to be image son, priest, king. And those two dynamics of priest and king speak to man's being the presence, the manifestation, the administration of God's own rule in the world. He is image son to be God unto the world, to manifest the mind, the wisdom, the purpose, the goodness, the love of God in in God's own oversight of his creation. And man also has this priestly role of, in a sense, being the focal point of the creation's own devotion and worship to God. Man, the creature, sums up the creation's praise and brings it back to God. Man is the interface between God and his creation. That's the glory of man. That's the glory of man. And David perceived that this human paradox, lower than God, crowned with glory and honor, Insignificant, impotent, weak, frail, the most glorious of the creatures. That human paradox is exactly, it's not random, it's not accidental, it's Yahweh's design that serves his ultimate end. It's God's design that it would be that way. And he expresses that in verse 2, which you, you may have thought, well, you skipped over verse 2. Well, this is, this is a window into what David's getting at here. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you've established strength. Because of your enemies, your adversaries, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. The imagery that David is using here, this, this you know, I mean, it does, on the face of it, it doesn't even make sense. Out of the mouths of infants... Is God's strength by which he triumphs over all of his enemies? That's not true. What is he talking about? It's imagery that expresses the truth that human weakness is precisely the instrument that God has ordained to establish his power in his creation and to vanquish all contradiction, all enmity. 
if the human creature, if human beings are impotent, dependent, and frail, infants and suckling babes are absolutely the most impotent, defenseless, frail, right? Dependent. If humans are that, babies are really that. Babies are really that. Those qualities are most pronounced in newborn and suckling children. And yet David says out of their sucking and crying mouths that can't even articulate a word, out of those mouths, God has established strength. He has chosen to disclose and establish his power over all opposition through utter human weakness and dependence. David is saying this paradox, this seeming, I I don't get it, you know, the heavens, man, this doesn't make sense. And he says it makes perfect sense. Here's the principle at work. You've ordained to establish your strength, your triumph, to realize your purposes through abject human weakness. Now that dynamic was not at all a part of Israel's expectation of the Messianic Deliverer. And I think David himself, as God's prototypical kind of quintessential king, had to himself come to grips with that as he understood that this Messianic figure was going to be a son from him, a son like him, a triumphal king. How would that happen? How would that work? This was not a part, this principle was not a part of Israel's expectation. But David could say, under the leading of the Spirit, that one day, one day, these contradictory, absurd words would prove astonishingly true. And that's what Jesus is citing from, again in Matthew 21, This is as he rides into Jerusalem and the children are singing his praises. He says, have you not read where it is written out of the mouths of babes? I have ordained praise. I've established strength. And he's not just finding a verse in his head that seems to correlate with children singing his praises. He's commenting on the significance of that testimony as it relates to what he's doing and what's going to come from this great triumph to be realized in the next few days. In that day, Yahweh would establish himself as king over all his creation, not by the sword's victory, but by the power of his own weakness in self-giving love. God's own apparent weakness. Jesus wrote in, or, or John writes, concerning Jesus in in John 12. Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The Son of Man is going to now be glorified. How is he going to be glorified? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The one who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone would serve me, let him follow this principle, this pattern. 
that where I am, my servant will be there also. And the one who serves me, the Father will honor him. And yes, now my soul is troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this very purpose that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And there came, therefore, a voice out of heaven. I've both glorified it and will glorify it again. And Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is on the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Because I'm going to ride in with the sword and start slaughtering everybody. No. If I am lifted up, I will draw men to myself. Out of the mouths of suckling babes, God has established strength. Out of weakness, impotence, mortality. Yahweh's messianic servant the son of Abraham, the son of David, would secure God's victory, establish God's everlasting triumph, his everlasting cosmic kingdom as Enosh and son of Adam. Now, David didn't explain all of these things in this way, but he clearly recognized God's intent to establish and execute his rule through his human creature. That's why he cites from the creation account. He understood man's unique significance, even though it's veiled in mortality, corruption, frailty. David knows, as we do as Christians, all we have to do is look in a mirror, but David understood, as we all do, that man as we know him bears little resemblance to the creature God described in Israel's, in Israel's scriptures. Human beings bear little, if any, resemblance to the creature the scriptures describe. Here's the point. David believed that Yahweh would indeed accomplish his purposes. We don't see man as God describes him, but he believed Yahweh. He believed Yahweh's purpose. And David sang his praise for having ordained this great creational cosmic triumph to be realized through frail, weak, mortal men. And so his bookends are the same, but they have a different point of reference in a sense. He begins by praising the God of creation. He ends by praising the God of creation, but with a view to the fact that this God who created will see the consummation of his creation. Man will become what God created him to be. That's the tension in the psalm. David knew, he looked at himself. Even David's own kingship fell so far short of the ideal that God gave. David's own life, his own reign, the kingdom failed because of him. Did this mean that God's purpose for the world would fail, or would man yet become truly man? David believed the latter. His closing doxology is his confident affirmation that God's purposes centered in man will yet be realized. O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is what you created man for. This is what man will become.
And that's the very essence of the psalm's messianic significance. It's not the phrase son of man. Oh, that means Jesus. There's the messianic quality of the psalm. The significance of it, the fragrance of it messianically is that. It lauds the God who, in a mysterious way, not yet disclosed at the time of David, would establish strength through the mouths of suckling babes. He would use human frailty and mortality to triumph on man's behalf, in that way making man truly man and setting him over the works of his hands. Psalm 8 speaks truthfully to the human identity vocation because that identity and vocation find their reality in Jesus himself. He is man unto mankind. So the human paradox that David perceived, and even more the abject failure that David knew to be true of man to be man, all of that David understood in some sort of, of, of kind of obscure way, un, incomplete, not, not really well understood way, that that quandary, that problem would be resolved in the one who is man indeed. And so I just want to close by reading Paul's introduction in Ephesians chapter 1 um, with you. And, and listen to Paul's words through this lens. What I've been talking about today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, in Christ, in the Messiah even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that in him we should be holy and blameless before our God. In love he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus the Messiah to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he has freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him, in the Messiah, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in Jesus, with a view to an administration suited to the fullness of the times, which is the summing up of everything in Christ, things in the heavens, things in the earth. And it's in him that we have obtained an inheritance, his inheritance. It's in him that we've obtained this inheritance, being predestined according to his purpose, the one who works all things after the counsel of this unchanging will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And so also you, in him, after listening to the message of truth, the good news of your deliverance, your salvation, having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, the Arabone. He is given as a pledge of our inheritance, the beginning, the first fruits, the guarantee of our inheritance, with a view to the ultimate redemption of God's own possession, the resurrection of the last day, the renewal of all things. To the praise of his glory, 
For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in Christ, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And here's what I pray for you, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give you a spirit of wisdom and of insight, of revelation in the knowledge of him, this kind of knowledge of him that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened so that you may know, you may really know what is the hope of his calling. What is the hope? What is the hope that David understood? What is the hope that we have? Is it our best life now under the sun? Is it our spirits going off to heaven when we die? What is our hope? That your eyes would really know what is the hope of his calling. That your hearts would know, rather. And what are the riches, what really are the true riches of the glory of this inheritance that is ours. The inheritance that belongs to the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power that is unto us. Not just in us, not just in a sense remotely connected with us, but unto us, for us towards the accomplishing of his own goal pertaining to us, toward us who believe. All of this is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realm, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. Psalm 8. Every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things in subjection under his feet. Psalm 8. Unto what end? That he would be head over all things, respecting the church, the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's the messianic significance of Psalm 8. There's what it speaks to us. It's a glorious thing. It's great to be forgiven, but it's so much more when we understand what God has purposed. It's great to be cleansed of our sin, but to simply be buffed up and sent on our way falls so vastly short of the destiny that God has ordained for us that David had a glimpse of, and he connected in some remote sense with the sun to come from him. We are the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have come. May the eyes of our hearts be illumined that we would know what is the hope of God's calling. What really are the riches of our inheritance? Is it just going to heaven? Is that the riches of our inheritance? And what really is the working and the goal, the trajectory, the outcome of God's power unto us. The summing up of everything in the heavens and the earth in Jesus our Lord. This triumph on behalf of the human race, on behalf of the cosmos, God accomplished in himself by becoming Enosh, by becoming Adam. The condescension of our God that we would triumph. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that we would never get over these things. And in fact, that we would continue to ponder them, that we would meditate, that we would labor in our own hearts to grow in the truth of these things. It's so true, as C.S. Lewis said, that we are so content to play in mud puddles when you have granted us a holiday at the sea. The glories that you have prepared, the glories that you have accomplished, the richness of the triumph of the Messiah, the glory of this good news is so much more, so much more comprehensive, so much more majestic than simply the confidence that we can be forgiven. Father, make us a gospel people. Make us be as Paul where we never get over the gospel. And we can understand what he meant when he said, it is the power of God. How is this good news your power? And how does it empower our lives? How does it empower our thoughts? How does it empower our goals? How does it inform and lead and and constrain us? How does it show us what it means to be Christians, those who are of Christ? I pray for each one, Father, that you would enlighten the, the eyes of our hearts. Paul didn't pray those things for unbelievers. He prayed them for a community of believers at Ephesus, recognizing that these are things that don't naturally occur to us. They don't naturally come to us. They are the work of your spirit to illumine us in that way. May we not be content with playing in mud puddles, with a very basic, rudimentary, superficial, childish faith, May we be those who strive in all things, to grow up in all things into Christ who is the head, to bear his fragrance in every place, that his name would be glorified in the church and through the church in the world, the church that is his fullness. What a glorious thing. Compel us, constrain us, press us forward. Don't let us be content. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.